Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to this Speak Up podcast with Laura Camacho. This is where we talk about the, the conversations that you need to have or you want to have to move closer to your goals. For those of you who don't know me, I am a recovering awkward person who has become a communication coach, not because I was naturally good at it, but because I was actually really bad. And the awesome thing is that I get to talk to people who've written books or they, they're also teachers in a way. And today we have Darren Renke, who is from California. He is the founder and managing director of a company called Group 60. But the most interesting thing about Darren, or one of them, is that he is the son of not one, but two veterinarians. How many people can say that? And I know a lot of you are animal lovers, so you're going to love hearing how, you know, think about it, that having two parents that loved animals so much that they became veterinarians. I think that's very cool. So welcome to the podcast, Darren. And uh Tell us a little bit your story about how you became, I mean, you're an executive coach and you do training out there in California. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Quite frankly, that's probably the first time I've ever been introduced as a son of two veterinarians, but probably one of the things that hopefully <laughs> makes me interesting. I'll definitely, I'm, I'm always, I guess, um, I... I'm always looking for the unusual side of things. And, and lately I've been into who people's parents are. So I, I don't know, maybe it's because I had two kids recently get married or something, but um, I think it does, it is interesting uh, who our parents are and what their career choices are and then what ours are in turn. So I know that you um, worked with Accenture and you had a lot of the um, blue chip company experience um, how did you get started? Like, what was your path like? Yeah, great question. And actually that does tie into the story of my parents as veterinarians. So I grew up as a kid in Northern California, a small little town called Larkspur, the son of two veterinarians. My sister is a dermatologist in something that I'll say is a human dermatologist, which causes some pretty interesting looks, but it makes sense because my mom's a veterinary dermatologist. So my sister is the human dermatologist. And which is funny because for up until about the middle of college, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And looking back, my dad's an orthopedic surgeon for pets. So a veterinary orthopedic surgeon. So similar to my sister's path, about halfway through college, I realized that wasn't the path for me for a whole host of reasons. And was intrigued by this concept or nebulous term in my mind of business. Luckily, I had some great mentors that steered me towards consulting. I also looked at investment banking and realized consulting would be a great place for me to quote unquote, figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so I did about four years at Accenture. It was Anderson Consulting at the time. I was there during the changeover from Anderson Consulting to Accenture. If you remember those, the old days of Accenture. My brother was there when it was Anderson Consulting. And so I was out of the San Francisco office. And so that really gave me a nice fundamentals in terms of business and learning about industries and functions and different types of clients and different business problems. And that was great. And so I thought, okay, I'll go get my MBA and then I'll figure it out. So, okay. So Accenture didn't figure it out for me or I didn't figure it out well at Accenture and surely my MBA will. So I went in thinking, okay, I'll combine my science background with an MBA and go into business development for pharmaceutical. Great. I'll put those two things together and I'll go on and right off into the sunset. So realized pretty quickly 
which I guess is common for many people going to grad school is that that isn't what I wanted to do. I became passionate about consumer brands. I worked for Neutrogena for a summer and then came out of business school, worked for Gap Corporate in San Francisco, partially because I'd met a young lady who's now my wife and wanted to stay in San Francisco for one more year. So that was the start of our romance. And now we've been married, gosh, I think uh, almost 14 years, 15 years now. And yeah, thank you. And so realized quickly, I didn't want to also be in the apparel industry, although I enjoyed it. I'd learned a lot, met some great folks, but got back into consulting. And then from there, just bounced around, did some, my own startup stuff, worked for some organizations, did mostly consulting. And then in 2010, launched Group 60 as a way just to create a business for myself. It was primarily focused at the time on marketing, given I had just come from a stint at Pro Flowers doing partnership marketing. And, but what I also realized quickly, and this is just one of a million twists and turns in my life and career, was that things were becoming increasingly digital from a marketing perspective Mm -hmm. and wasn't a place that I thought we could compete and win. And so I pivoted back to more of what I did at Accenture, more project management, more strategy consulting, and then eventually just realized seeing so many projects in my life and career just go off the rails because of underdeveloped leaders and leadership teams and just soft skills issues that I became intrigued by this concept of coaching and I'd always found myself in mentorship, management, advisory type of roles. And as an athlete in high school and someone who's passionate about sports, just I always knew what coaching was in a sports context, but never really knew what it was from a business context. And so luckily a mentor of mine, Annette, who used to be the global head of consulting for Gallup, was going through a coach training program. And she's someone I've always deeply admired. And I figured, hey, it's good enough for Annette. It's good enough for me. It's fully vetted. Went into the six-day program, was honestly, probably six of the most enriching days of my life and my career and, and came out on the, the back end thinking, okay, I don't want to do full-time executive coaching with, you know, 20, 30 hours a week. I can't believe people actually do that. And, but I did find it to be highly complimentary to the consulting work. And then over time have really evolved the company to be executive coaching. And then also training as well, because a lot of clients have said, Hey, what can you do in a more scalable capacity in terms of delivering some of those principles, some of those behaviors, some of those mindsets, but not in a one-on-one context, in a one to 30, one to 50 context to help, to help drive the adoption of some of those new behaviors. Yeah, I think that, uh, I, I mean, you're uh, an official executive coach and I'm a communication coach who does not have a coaching certificate, but I do have a PhD and a coach actually helped me turn my life around in a low part, in a low time in like 2008. So I know the value of coaches and, and, but it's also true that it's cool to take what you learn in those super intimate conversations, private coaching, you know, what's going on inside their heads because they're telling you, and then you get to use that and leverage it, scale it as if you will in the training. So your training is like, is not an off the box program that somebody created. It's something that you have lived with your clients. I just think it makes the best training programs when they're informed with that, you know, that those conversations that are so personal, don't you think? Yeah. And as someone, you obviously know the space well in terms of training and exactly as you get to 
get some real hands-on experience working one-to-one, working very closely with several people. And you learn some of those, those real pain points. You understand it from their perspective so you can deliver it. So it's less of a, a front of room, one-to-many shouting from the mountaintop and more of that interactive dialogue, that conversation where you're doing a lot of interactive exercises. And so that people can actually learn to truly adopt and integrate some of these new skills, these new behaviors. Right. And you know that they're, to how to kind of to get at things that they may not have been prepared to share in class, but you know the things that are going on in their head or could be going on because of the coaching conversations. But anyway, so uh, I forgot to tell everybody that Darren has written a book called The Savage Leader, which definitely caught my attention. I was thinking of the um, the antagonist in one of the Pink Panther movies, his name was Sauvage. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if you saw that, <laughs> but um, it's a very interesting take on leadership. I think uh, one of Darren's big points that I that really resonated with me is he emphasizes authenticity because a lot of times we feel that at work, especially if we're aiming for a promotion, that we need to become someone else. And, and in a way you do because we're all growing, but yet you need to be that who you are, not someone else. So I know you have some uh, best practices for being authentic, no matter what your position is, no matter how many promotions you get. So t- tell us about those, um, you know, how, because I know that your book uh, includes the tools that you use and the tools are derivatives of your coaching work and your training work. So tell me about these, the story of the best practices for authenticity. Yeah, no, thank you. Great question. And, and just so authenticity, that's one of the 13 principles in the book. And just even back up a bit more to provide some context. So the book is just really about what I talk about or consider the inner journey that goes on inside of us as leaders, because so many times people read books, they watch a TED talk, they go to a course and it's, it's so much about the external, the visible behaviors that people see, but there's so much that goes on internally in terms of understanding and anchoring to our values, to learning to understand what it means to be authentic and how to do so, how to uh, foster greater sense of patience and perseverance and uh, how to deal with self-limiting beliefs and so forth. And it's this inner journey that people go on. And, and frankly, these are th- this is the journey that I've gone on myself as a leader. And so a lot of the anecdotes came from other people in terms of second person interviews I did with folks, but also I ended up telling a lot of my own stories because I felt that it was relevant, but just the idea of this internal journey. So, but to your point, this piece about authenticity is yes, externally visible. It's to be authentic, but so much about that inner piece is first of all, is to be comfortable and, and aware of your values. So it's about truly anchoring to those values, sticking to them, not violating them. I mean, to your point about best practices is just making sure that you're being true to those and that you're not saying, Hey, here's my own personal values. Here's the values of the team that we write up on the wall or the values of the organization that we put on our internet site or in our email signature, but that we actually walk the walk that we actually live up to those things. We say, I want to, we want the organization to be more candid. It's okay. What does that actually mean? How do we actually demonstrate that as leaders? So that's one of the real important things about authenticity is becoming really clear and aware of what your values are, but in terms of demonstrating them and not violating them per se. Right. So that's, that's, def- that's definitely one piece. 
Yes, anchoring to your values is so important. And it's also curious how people that they think it's the outside thing that they, they look around, we look around and we see, you know, Joe Blow or Mary is this great leader and, you know, she's very tall or he tells a lot of jokes and we think, oh, it's that. But, and that's why for me, the number one thing clients ask me about in the private coaching side is uh, executive presence because they want mm -hmm. to have that. They're imagining it's this, physical outside presence but really the presence comes from being what you're saying the use your words anchored to your values like this is what i this is who i am this is what's important to me and because i know that i can relax and relate to other people in the room and not worry about how what they're thinking of me yeah it actually a bridge between this concept of authenticity and executive presence is a phrase and i'm still wrestling with it it's it's authentic, confident, being authentically confident or confidently authentic. And just the idea that if you really tap into the core of who you are as a person and you're authentically true, that you're going to be outwardly more confident and present that executive presence and demonstrate gravitas and all those things that I know you work with, with your clients. Right. And I, I had the most fun. It's easiest for me to model that concept when I'm coaching my clients in Spanish because I speak Spanish but of course it's my second language so I flub up sometimes so I'll tell them look even though I stick my foot in my mouth I'm still an effective communicator so it's not the the like having that perfect word at the perfect time although that's always great but it's that confidence from knowing who you are and, and what you're about but I like that being authentically confident or confidently authentic they both I think they both work, uh, but it's not, it's really, yeah, having the courage to be yourself and not try to fit what other people think you should be, don't you think? Yeah, which actually brings up another piece, which what you talked about when you're modeling that executive presence, which is the concept of vulnerability and wow. authenticity does involve being vulnerable. And this isn't like the, hey, I'm going to, disclose my insecurity in the moment or situation, especially as a leader, but it can be being vulnerable in terms of sharing some of the past challenges you've, that you faced, how you overcame those challenges, some concerns that you have moving forward for the future. It's not the full open the kimono type of vulnerability, right. but right. it's really just about disclosing what, what feels comfortable. And obviously this gets back to being authentic as well as disclosing what feels safe to you to disclose to people in terms of vulnerability. But those folks who can be vulnerable are definitely more authentic. And I found more and more in my coaching work that I found the more vulnerable that I am, not to make it about myself, but by sharing some of those challenges and struggles that I've faced, it allows you to connect more authentically with people, which is the same way it goes if you're leading a team is to disclose some of those things. You get people just to, to understand you more, they have some empathy and they're quite frankly, they like you more and they're willing to do more for you in terms of not for you, but they're willing to really walk through fires for you. That's so true. And, it's so, and like you said, it's not that you, you know, share your innermost struggles from when you were seven years old, although you could, but it's just, I think, I uh, think it's about sharing the lessons learned. And when, and when it's you, the one that learned the lesson and you have the scars to show it, besides all, being authentic about building bonds with our tribes, you know, what, what we used to call our network and 
And it's so important to have these relationships. And what is your take on, on, on building, you know, a personal network without feeling slimy about it and what, and doing that during uh, social distancing? No, great question. And it almost just gets to that fundamental concept of communication, which obviously is your area of expertise, but it starts once again with, with some basic mindsets in mm-hmm. terms of just connecting with your tribe. It starts by, and these are some basic just principles and mindsets of being a great leader, frankly, which is by being humble. So humble enough to, to accept that you may not have the answer to every question. You could be the smartest person in the room and you could be talking to the, the frontline salesperson, the frontline customer service person, and they're going to have something to offer. And having that sense of humility is really important. And similar to that is just having a baseline level of curiosity, curious to know about someone's background, their experience, their take on a particular topic or issue. I mean, those are really a couple of key things. Also in terms of building on those is being present and being pr- truly present for people. And this isn't just, a, you know, Eastern philosophy. I mean, I'm sure that's, that's partially where it's grounded, but just truly being there for people. You're not checking your phone. You're not checking your computer. You're not gazing off into the distance to, to see what else is going on, what could be potentially, quote, more important, but really mm-hmm. being truly present for people. And then also, and these are also principles of communication, which is being an active listener and listening for what people are saying, how they're saying, how they're saying it, listening for perhaps what's not being said because they may be omitting something from a conversation so that can point to some of their challenges and struggles and then asking a lot of great questions and this is also about being a great coach all of these principles are the same thing but it creates that connection is to ask questions that are you're not trying to drive to a conclusion that you know it's about creating new awareness to new possibilities so those are a couple of mindsets and skill sets that really underpin this concept of communication, but also in terms of how do you connect with your tribe? But in terms of dealing with things where we're not front and center in, in front of people or working over video and not just even our conversation today feels quite comfortable because the last year has been so much of this and it's the in-person that's actually less familiar these days, but it's, it's a lot of those same things, but I think it's really being attentive to some communication hygiene, you know, in terms of thinking about the medium that you're using. I think we tend to get sloppy, especially when we're using digital means, whether it's on Slack or some other instant messaging platform, or we're texting or emailing just because we're moving so fast and it doesn't always lend itself well for a, Hey, how you doing? No type of type of introduction or conversation. So I think it's important just to maintain some of that hygiene per se And, but also, and this really pertains to any kind of communication is to make sure that we're thinking about the other person that we're communicating with. It's not just, it's not just about how we want to receive the information, whether we want loads of data, whether we want direct to the point, we want to really warm up a conversation It's thinking about that other person and really tailoring that message to the other person. So that's another thing to really think about. And I think when you miss the mark on that, it becomes amplified in this current environment, given we're doing so much work remotely and we don't have the benefits of bumping each other in the, you know, by the virtual water cooler and the break room, or even just out in the courtyard or just in general out in life. So it's just all of our interactions are tend to be digital or at the very least, mostly on video. Yes, uh, this is very true. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, way back with the with the curiosity and the humility 
and maintaining that, you know, in the digital or remote communication and, and not getting sloppy. That was, I mean, all of those, that's just so true. I think the sloppiness comes from doing too much, right? And just not paying attention to the details. I asked, who was it that I asked? Recently, I asked somebody who works in a big company. I don't remember who. And I said, so, you know, whoever, her, whatever her name was. It, I said, so tell me, like, everybody's got their camera where we're not looking up their noses, not right? And she's like, no, that's not uh, not 100% across the board yet, that people are still being sloppy, you know, having their Zoom link on their phone, which is sitting on their desk, which is looking up their face, which is uh, not your best look and to begin with. And it's also a distracting. But I, I want to talk about adapting to other people versus being authentic. Like I sometimes that like, how do you, how far do you go to adapt to someone else before you can lose your authenticity? Oh, great question. Yeah. So I think it was more of just this sense for just communication in general. I think you can still layer in some of those authentic parts. And so I use a, an assessment called the SDI, Strengths Deployment Inventory, that's about understanding people's motives and their strengths. So different than the Strengths Finder or Clifton mm -hmm. Strengths, but it's about if you're motivated by people, process, performance, or by perspective or hub. And it's using those to understand where someone else is coming from and tailoring your style accordingly. But you still could be authentic to yourself and say, hey, you know, because I am performance oriented. I am a quote red on this assessment mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. I'm getting a bit frustrated. We're moving a little bit too slow. We're really digging into the details too much. So that, I mean, to me, I think that would be being authentic, but I, I hear you in terms of making sure that we're not changing so much that we're not being authentic. So, but I think authentic, I don't want to confuse that for being inflexible because I oh, think that's a good that, distinction. Yeah. So, so I think it's just, it's in the same thing goes for being, Hey, I'm just, I'm just being authentic. I'm going to be casual. If I'm a casual person, I'm going to show up in the office and flip-flops and board shorts and a tank top and a, and a, you know, a hat. But, um, I think it's, it's, it's gotta be a little bit more measured than that. You know, it's being more authentic in terms of who you are, more about your values and things like that. But obviously you may want to dial this back, depending back on the situation that you're in. But, um, but I do think it's about being true to who you are, but yeah, while not being also, totally inflexible. Right. I love that. You know, I heard this definition of thinking is the art of making distinctions. And that was a good uh, illustration mm. of that as a potential uh, definition. But it is, it is making distinction. And it's also there, there's the idea of bringing like your A game. Like you may prefer to wear flip flops, but uh, you're not, it's likely that you're not uh, as sharp as you are when you're wearing shoes that actually have laces on them so that, that it, there are a lot of distinctions to to make and, and all of this leadership i'm sure with your coaching and training is not that people have to totally revolutionize their practices it's little changes with big impact you know that low-hanging fruit and Absolutely. Uh, you talk about uh <laughs> To, to be in shape in order to pivot and to, and to be, you know, mentally and emotionally strong. You talk about mental and physical reps. 
So what does that mean? Like, how can we, how can, what are the reps that you do mentally? I know physical is lifting weights or like I swim. So tell me about mental reps. Yeah. This is actually something that I learned from people that I've met. So uh, one person is a, um, a therapist and volleyball coach. And so one of the Mm -hmm. things that she has the women on her team do is to get ready for the nerves of a game and the pressure is she'll have them run up the hill and then run back on the court and receive a serve. So that way their heart's pumping and they're simulating the physiological response of stress, but by doing it just by getting exercise and raising your heart rate. So the same thing goes, you could practice that if you're practicing for a speech, run up and down the stairs or do 20 jumping jacks so that your heart's pumping, you're a little bit out of breath. It'll really stimulate that moment for you really well. And the other thing, that's more from a physical reps in perspective, but also I spoke to a former professional Ironman triathlete and just given the insane amount of just tax on your, your mind, on your body, when you're in these races, he talks about these dark times that he would go into and to prepare for those, he would lay in bed every night for a couple of months leading up to a race. And he would just visualize what that situation would look like, what it would feel like, what were the thoughts going through his head. And so that way, when it became race day and that moment happened, his legs were tightening up and he just couldn't think anymore that he had prepared for those moments. And I think that can be applied as a leader as well as whether you're thinking about a big speech to your sales organization, or you're presenting to your board, or you're getting in front of your most important customer for a make or break deal. That's going to make your quota for the quarter for the year. It's doing some of those mental reps, but also some of those physical reps as well. So I thought it was really interesting in, in things that I've actually applied immediately in my own life, but I think it's, it's pretty cool. And, and something you could borrow from a, a coach or an athlete or also a, a public speaker that I met a very successful public speaker. He likes to walk around the room before he goes on stage to warm himself up. I think a lot of it's about nerves and you find some friendly faces, but also it allows him to practice the tone and the cadence of his voice before it matters. You know, it's kind of like, NBA players. And I used to do this in high school. I'd three dribbles, spin the ball backwards and I'm shooting a free throw and then swish hopefully or brick or air ball. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it allowed you to get your body, get your mind moving in an inconsequential manner, because when you're shooting the ball, that part is consequential, but the act of warming up, whatever that may be mentally or physically is what quote unquote doesn't count. Yeah. You know what, what you're saying about the, the guy imagining, visualizing, not the best outcome, but visualizing the hardship. That reminds me of the Stockdale paradox. Have you heard of that? Are you familiar with that? James Stockdale? No. What is the Stockdale paradox? Oh my gosh. You are going to learn something today. So the James Stockdale was the highest ranking naval officer who was captured by the Vietnamese in the Vietnam War, spent time at the Hanoi Hilton and was tortured. And uh, so so this is going to lead into the limiting beliefs versus and the mental reps. So it's kind of the space between those. So James Stockdale said, you know, he came out like, how did you survive? I think he was there seven years. He said, you have to fully face your reality, your unpleasant or just just disaster of a reality. It's not pretending that it's not that bad 
or it's not looking necessarily at the sunny side, it's fully facing what the problem is, but at the same time, having that conviction that you're going to get through it. And he said the soldiers who were like, oh, we'll be out by Thanksgiving, and then Thanksgiving would come, they're still there, they, you know, they lose heart. And then as long as when you're in that kind of situation, if your brain isn't in uh, good shape, then you can lose resistance to live under such challenging circumstances. Uh, so he would say, you know, these people who were thinking, oh yeah, but by Christmas for sure we'll be home or by Valentine's day or by Easter. And then the, all these days would come and these people just would lose it. Whereas the, the people who came out best were like, you know, I'm starving, I'm in pain, I may be here many years, but I'm going to make it. That's the Stockdale paradox. So I teach people like when they're afraid of something of like, go, let's go to the worst possible scenario. And then, and then how are you going to deal with it? So tell me, how do you know when you're like being too negative by preparing for the negative versus having a limiting belief? Mm, good question. In the yeah, Stockdale paradox, I'd heard about that in a different sense. It was talking about the people who survived the POW camps were the most mm -hmm. pessimistic. I think that's right. Whereas the optimists were the ones who couldn't get through it. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So to so make a connection between so self-learning beliefs and just accepting kind of your your fate in some sense or well i mean if you're just thinking about how negative it is are you not being negative and not being like uh oh i can do this i can get through it i mean what maybe because yes. you know that uh, people who are like too positive or too you know oh i'm a i'm a millionaire i'm you know i'm going to add a zero to my income are they facing reality I don't think there's some balance there. And I do, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, positive thought, positive psychology, all those kinds of things, whether it's a mantra and I think you can get in the right headspace. Do I think that it creates magic? I don't know, but um, I do think, and I'm not saying dwell on the negative per se. It's more about to anticipate something, you know, is coming to prepare yourself and do some of those physical and mental reps for that. So to me, a uh, self-limiting beliefs are more about these, these stories that we have in our head, these values that we carry forward from either the way we were brought up and our value system, our comments that people made, uh, experiences that we went through. So for me, I had this, as I talk about in the book, is a self-limiting belief about my ability to write. And because, you know, I didn't get, I mean, there were bad grades, but I was trying to get into med school at the time. So I needed to have essentially straight A's. So college English, I thought, oh, I, I can't write. It's like, no. In, in reflection, it's about, no, you didn't do amazing at analyzing Kafka's metamorphosis or all these different pieces of literature, which I considered esoteric at the time. Obviously, those are important pieces of literature. But <laughs> And so what I've realized is that was just a frame that I had in my head about that piece of it and not so much, hey, that you couldn't write. And I think a lot of people have beliefs about, oh, I, I'm not, I can't be successful I didn't go to school X or I haven't, I've only worked two years in this business. I don't have enough experience. And I think those things are really negative anchors for people. And I think they're obviously important, right? I mean, experience matters where you go to school, I guess in some sense can matter, but um, although I do believe it's about what you can do and what you know, but um, versus what it says on your degree. But 
not carrying those anchors with you because they're just going to hold you back. So, mm-hmm. you know, one thing I like to think about is flipping that metaphor in terms of throwing that anchor, throwing that catapulting that almost like a mountain climbing hook up the mountain and use it to pull you forward. So for me, one thing I did to help push myself off that, off that belief was to commit to writing this book. And it's like, okay, now I'm committed. I started telling friends, I started family. And of course they look at me crazy. Like, yeah, you're going to write a book. Good luck. But you start telling people, start telling clients. And once I did that, I was fully committed. So one way or the other, I'm going to challenge that belief, you know, which is a great, is it always there? Or are you going to get rid of it altogether? I don't know, but it definitely helps you to push past some of those barriers. Yes. I love that. And did you ever read Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis? Metamorphosis? Uh, well, I, yeah, I did. I remember the classroom I was in in college sitting through and <laughs> hope I wasn't going to get it cold called to uh, provide a perspective. So yes. <laughs> I <laughs> so, thought yes, that was, was a really weird book. I, mean, I didn't read it in college. I read it after college and I don't know. I don't know what the takeaway from that book is, but it is definitely a strange story. So I will leave that for another podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> I, what I wanted to ask you, so in your coaching, we want the skinny, and I know that if people read your book, The Savage Leader, they'll get this, but like, what is it that really holds people back from moving forward in their careers when they like maybe why do they get overlooked for a position why do they not get it and I know there's a lot of reasons that can be in play so just talk to me about that why they're overlooked I mean obviously we talked about self-limiting beliefs and that's that that's almost like our own internal anchors that hold us Mm -hmm. back Mm -hmm. but when I think about leaders and becoming a great leader and whatever that definition is. I mean, we all have different definitions of greatness. It could be to go start a billion dollar company. It could just be to make a difference in the community or to be a developer of people. But I look at three things and this is, uh, you know, I think true of any leader is first, you have to have a desire to be great. So they have the desire for greatness Two, you have to be willing to be introspective just in terms of understanding what are our values, what are our strengths, what are some development areas and the third piece, which is how do you activate those two things? You have to be willing to put in the work. So I think if people without those three, I think they can tend to be overlooked because if you're not willing to, to be great, you want to be great. You want to get better. It doesn't have to be great, but I want to get better. You're just going to be stagnant and you're probably going to get overlooked. If you're not self-aware and introspective, you're going to ignore some of those gaps or not ignore, or even overlook because you're not even thinking about them okay, I got a negative feedback review. It's like, okay, I'm a little bit offended. Maybe it was the boss. Maybe they have something out for me, but try to find some sliver of truth in that, in some of that developmental feedback. And then the last piece is you got to be willing to work hard. You got to learn. It's not enough to show up and punch clock and just to show up and do your job. What's in your job description. You got to constantly grow and get better. I mean, the world is changing so fast. I mean, just think as a manager in the last year, people had to quickly pivot or pivot on the spot to managing virtual teams. And if they weren't trying to develop some of those skills about as your wheelhouse is about becoming a better communicator in a virtual environment, they're going to really struggle for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes with people who get promoted from individual contributor to manager. They think they can just keep doing the same thing, but it's like, no, they have to get stuff done with and through other people not just they're not the doer anymore, which is a very, very different skill set. And unfortunately, we select the people that are the great doers and perhaps not the great managers and leaders to uh, yep. to, to lead teams. 
but it's topic for a different day. I think those are, those are, those are a couple of things. And by the way, those three things are what we look for in terms of who we evaluate to coach is Mm -hmm. you have to be willing to, you want to get better, be great. You got to be willing to be introspective and you have to be willing to put in the hard work. But I think the same thing goes, is true for great leaders as well. And to be your point, getting overlooked. Yeah. There you go. I mean, I think, I think, I think the introspective piece is the hardest. I was just coaching someone today who was complaining about one of her reports coming, who's very young, who has like, thinks she knows all the answers. And according to my client was uh, like communicating a sense of entitlement. And I think now, you know, of course we talked around that and, you know, coming up with uh, how does that, how does any behavior that we don't like, how does that impact other people? But if you're not introspective, it doesn't matter. You can, you know, you cannot receive help if you're not willing to look, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the most basic points, right? It's like, well, Mm -hmm. it's like, tell me if you don't know what you're aiming for, how can you get better? And Mm -hmm. a lot of times that is introspection, whether it's just being aware of some of our own challenges or faults or, or limits, but also it's being self-aware when we do get that feedback to actually look at it and not be afraid of it, but to try to be aware go, okay, well, maybe I don't agree with that, but can I see how someone else might see that in me? The way Mm -hmm. I'm showing up as being whatever it may be, you know, interrupting people, overconfident, um, too reserved, whatever that may be. And just having that sense of self-awareness to actually look at some of that feedback, but also just even without that from an unaided perspective is say, okay, what can I do to grow and get better? What do I need to do? What are some of my challenges? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Love that. All right. Well, we are out of time, Darren, before we go, I would, would like two things. First of all, I want you to put yourself, think about, someone who has been say director at a large company for two or three years and she's proven you know she's solid in her position wants to move up what is the advice you know you don't have any more details at that I want you to just help that person with your point of view and then tell people how they can get in touch with you no great thank you for that I think it just gets back to that self-awareness piece. So I think reflecting and not just reflecting on recent feedback, but on your career journey and get a sense for what have I, what do I do? Well, what have I done well in the past? What do people ask me for? How do I, how am I most helpful for people? How do I show up? And what am I the best version of myself when I'm in the most confident, the most productive? And I think also the importance of mentorship is so important, whether it's internally or externally is if you're looking to take the next step, find someone who's already done that and you know whether they're a fellow person who's advanced beyond that director's spot a, a person that's maybe you're a boss or an internal mentor just getting that external perspective is so powerful because you can learn so much from some of the mistakes they've made some of the advice because it's going to be so relevant to you in that specific role oh that is so good well the people who are listening to that can't see it, but I've taken copious notes, lots of uh, wisdom here. And I thank you so much. Did you tell people how to get a hold of you? The group 60 or LinkedIn or what? Yeah. Oh, just buy yeah, the so, book, The Savage Leader. 
<laughs> a couple of things. Yeah, my contact info is actually in the back of the book. But uh, in terms of getting in contact with me, our website is group60.com. So G-R-O-U-P and then the number 60 spelled out S-I-X-T-Y.com. And if you're interested in the book, you can go to thesavageleader.com. There's more information about the book. Of course, there's a link to buy it as well. There's a free field guide that we've created to go along with it because for me, I have a pain point about reading something and not being able to apply it immediately. So it's this workbook that you can actually, it's editable or you can print it out to help put the 13 principles into action. Oh, that is awesome. Well, thank you so much, Darren. It's been fun. It was not terribly savage, but it was uh, very insightful. And uh, well, before, yeah, tell us real quick, like uh, what was your thinking with a savage leader? Because that to make, I think of somebody, um, you know, like prehistoric when I think of the word savage. What were you, what was your concept of that word? So for me, it's about, as you know, the book's about the internal journey and mm-hmm. savage is, is about being willing to em- embrace some of your um, challenges, self-limiting beliefs, really connecting to your values, overcoming challenges and obstacles, persevering. To me, that's really savage is being savage enough to to look deep inside and to overcome some of those things. But yeah, and also, of course, it's a, I thought it was a nice provo- provocative title. I did get some <laughs> feedback. It's definitely <laughs> provocative. All right, everybody. We'll see you. We're going to sign off now. Until the next time, talk to you later. Bye-bye. 